If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Written by Paul, Paul the Apostle, who has been called by some the most successful Christian. I think he would earn that moniker, you know. Um, being, the, being the fact of all that he went through, all that he did for Jesus, because he loved Jesus. You know, he had been such a persecutor of the church, and then the Lord got a hold of his heart and took all of that angst and zeal and everything and, and used it for a new purpose. And that's, you know, that's what the Lord does, doesn't he? He repurposes people. You notice that? The Lord repurposes us. He takes us from just living for ourselves in this world and uh, living for futility, and he, and he gives us eternity to live for. And, uh, and so Paul, you know, Paul had something that really kept him going. I think he had a philosophy of life. Of course, it was based in Scripture. But his philosophy enabled him to go through stuff and not complain, not get bitter, somehow maintain a spirit of gratitude and joy even in the midst of great hardship. I mean, he really lived out what James said, you know, to consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. I, I don't think I've met very many people that actually could do that, okay, myself included. <laughs> it's, I, it's hard to consider it pure joy when you go through trouble, okay? But Paul really managed to do that. And we're gonna look at, I believe, what were the key components here today of what enabled him to go through so much stuff and still come out ahead, still come out with joy and peace in his heart. And I really believe that God wants us to do that. You know, he doesn't want us to let the circumstances of life or other people rob us of the joy we have in him, of the peace we have in the Lord. Um, and so, so we're going to look at that here today. Now remember, Paul was writing this he was under house arrest in Rome, and, uh, you know, he wasn't, I'm sure, what he really wanted. He was, sort of had wanderlust, I'm sure, in the sense of going out on these missionary journeys, you know, but, but he, he made the best of it, and in the process, he brought joy to, the, to these Philippians, who had been such a support to him in his, in his ministry. And so he was just very grateful for them, for their friendship, for their support. But then he says in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now, the Greek literally says... Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. You see, there was something that the Philippians would have really understood by that phrase. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. And it was sort of an exemplary Roman colony in the sense of its government, its, its justice. And so the Philippians knew all about what it meant 
to, to be a worthy citizen of Rome. But what he's saying here is that, you know, you are now citizens of heaven. And therefore, because you are citizens of heaven, you need to conduct yourself as a good citizen of heaven. In, in fact, it, the idea here is that we are like a colony uh, from heaven because we have been brought into this new relationship with God through Christ. You know, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, Paul would say to the Ephesians. And we're like a colony here in this world, a colony of Christians, a colony of those who are in the world but do not have citizenship in this world. Now, I know that in the physical realm, it's possible to have dual citizenship, okay? You, you know, like you could be a citizen of the United States and a citizen of England or something, you know? Uh, you can have that dual citizenship. But let me just tell you one thing. That does not work in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> you have to make your choice. Either you're gonna be a worldling, a citizen of this world, you're going to love this world. You're going to be settled in this world. You're going to be about this world. Or you're going to understand that you are a citizen of heaven and you're a stranger in this world. It's one of the, it's one of the other. You can't be both. And, you know, as my pastor used to say, if you try to sit on the fence, the only thing that ever happens is you get ripped shorts. That's the only thing that happens. <laughs> so you have to choose where is your citizenship? Because that's going to be where you are loyal. And so Paul is saying, look, you are heavenly citizens. And, and this comes out in the New Living Translation. It says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. What does that mean? It means that, that I know that I am here representing somebody else. I'm here with a different set of rules, a different set of laws. Now, the good news about that is because this teaches us how it is that we are to conduct ourselves. You know, in this world, you're going to get all kinds of pressure, all kinds of rhetoric uh, in order to how, we, how the world thinks we should conduct ourselves, what the world thinks our values should be. And if we don't have a strong compass, if we don't have a good knowledge of what God's conduct is and what God requires of us, of us as citizens of heaven, then we are going to be bounced to and fro with all of the winds and pressures of this world. And, and we won't know how to take a stand because we won't know where, where, where to take a stand, you see. But knowing that you are a citizen of heaven, knowing that, that God has set forth the laws by which we live, the moral laws, the spiritual laws, that that then gives us the ability to know what kind of conduct it is that God requires of us. And people ought to be able to look at our conduct and know that we are Christians. I mean, it's been said if they came and arrested all the Christians, would there be enough evidence to prosecute you? You see? <laughs> would people know? Or would they be, are you kidding me? You're a Christian? That's bad. <laughs> That's bad. They shouldn't be saying that, okay? And so, so Paul is saying, okay, this is how we are to be. Um, and um, 
Warren Wiersbe said, the church of Jesus Christ is a colony of heaven on earth, and we ought to behave like the citizens of heaven. It has been said that you are the only gospel many people will read. You know, they don't pick up the Bible. But if you say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, they are watching you. And you know what? They have every right to do that. Because we are representing him. You see, we are, as Paul would also say, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ as though God were making his appeal through us be reconciled to God. We are to be representing him. And so people are judging God. They're judging Christianity for sure, but they're also judging Christ, whether whether rightly or wrongly, by what they see in us. That's a heavy responsibility, isn't it? But it's, that's the reality. And so um, because of that, we need to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Uh, Paul wanted them to live this way always so that, you know, whether he remained in prison or paid them a surprise visit, okay? <laughs> you know, that... When I was a kid, you know, my dad would tell me the chores that he wanted me to get done in the day. And I did like every teenager did. I, I didn't get to them at all until about 10 minutes before he was expected to come home. But every now and then he would come home early. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I was just the super procrastinator, you know. And so... So the idea here is that Paul is saying, look, I, I, you don't know when I'm going to show up. Here's the thing. We don't know when the Lord's going to show up, right? The Lord is near. We don't know when he's coming back. And so whether he's saying, look, whether I'm there in person or not, the main, God is always there. And the thing is, is that you need to conduct yourselves the same way as a citizen of heaven. And we should know that you know, that's our ultimate home. And that's why we don't, we don't want to get too settled in this world. I mean, if you, if you live, if everything you do is about this world and about making life more cush in this world, but you do not lay up treasures in heaven, guess what? You're going to die. You can't take it with you. And then what? What have you laid up? As a citizen of heaven, it, do you have a house in heaven? Is, you know, have, you, have you prepared the way for what you're going to enter after this life? You see, that's, that's what's important. And if we are going to follow in the faith of Abraham, okay, Abraham is set forth as an example to us, as the father of those who are justified by faith, right? Because, you know, God, you know, he said, God, everything's cool, but except I don't have a son. I don't have a, a, a descendant, a, an heir. And, and, and so the Lord said, come on, Abraham, let's go outside. And he took him out on a starry lit night. And he said, you see all those stars? Abraham, number them if you can. And, and he said, so shall, shall your uh, descendants be, innumerable. And we're told that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. He's the father of those who are justified just because they believe God. Hallelujah. Amen? God justifies the wicked, Paul said in Romans, 
who believe in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. There's hope for us all. But understand that Abraham also didn't, even though he was wealthy, the Bible says he was actually loaded down, literally, with wealth. Yet he didn't look for his place in this world. He looked for the world to come. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven nine, 9, he said, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he wanted, waited, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's where he set his sights. On what was to come, he lived by faith. He looked for something better that was yet to come. So Paul said that's the way you ought to live. Knowing where your citizenship is, living worthy of that, conducting yourselves in a manner uh, that is in accordance with the gospel. Then he says, verse 27, that you stand fast in one spirit. Now, the Lord places a high value on standing fast. That is to stand your ground. Keep at your post. Do what God's called you to do. Don't waver. You know, endure. Um, The Lord places a high value on that. My pastor used to say that, you know, when all is said and done, it seems like the people that God uses are the ones that just keep showing up. <laughs> They're faithful to their post. And I love, I love watching our dear servants, our ushers, our greeters, our Sunday school workers, the people that set up, the AV people, all that, that show up here every week, the parking lot people, you know, the, the, all of the stuff that goes into just being able to worship together here at a gym and convert this into a church every week, Okay. And I'm blessed by the fact that these people show up and they're faithful to their post. God places a high value on on that and to stand fast. But he also, Paul also said, to stand fast in one spirit. You see, the other thing that God places a high value on is unity in the body of Christ. Oneness. Singleness of mind. Singleness of purpose. Singleness of heart. It's what Jesus prayed for right before he's going to the cross. He's pleading with the Father. Father, make them one as we are one, Father. You know, again and again he said that. So that the world will know that you sent me. You know, this uh, worship in the park, or not worship in the park, I'm getting confused. Worship in the park is on the 15th. That's at Ann Morrison. United Night of Worship, that's at Julius Kleiner Amphitheater Band Show, that's on August 27th, okay? I'm clearing it up for my own head. (laughs) But I'm excited about this United Night of Worship because there's so many different churches involved, so many different Christians involved from throughout the valley. And the Bible says that where brethren dwell together in unity, according to Psalm 133, God commands a blessing. The Lord is all over that. He desires that for his church. And and if the world were to see a more united, I don't don't mean that we all have to, you know, 
practice the same styles, live in the same church, and you know, that sort of organizational unity. I'm talking about spiritual unity, oneness in Jesus, loving our brothers and sisters. You know, I, I, I love going to Romania because I feel such kinship with, with these people that are on the other side of the planet that have a completely different culture, but as soon as you're with them, you, you experience the oneness we have in Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing, and I know that that's what pleases the Lord's heart. And this is the one thing that if, you, if, if Paul had to bring something that was a word of correction to the Philippians, it would be this. Because there was some division, there was some strife. We'll see that there was actually two women that were contending, but I don't think it was just limited to them. There was some strife going on in the church, division. And so Paul is saying, you know, stand fast in one spirit. Stand your ground in one spirit. Now, we can't do this alone, okay? Understand, we are called to a battle. This is a spiritual battle. We are to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ in a wicked world. And because we are in a spiritual battle, you have to understand something about the spiritual uh, or, or the warfare, say, of the Romans. You could not stand against the onslaught of the oncoming enemy as one person. It required a whole army, and you had to be united. In fact, the shields, the big shield, the large shield that they would carry was, was manufactured in such a way that you could, you could fit them all together and put them over your head, and as you would form a line, it was a, an impenetrable defense to the flaming arrows or whatever that was coming your way. And that is the image. We can't stand alone. We have to stand arm to arm, hooked up with other believers, not just in this church, but in the capital C church, the big church, the one where we're gonna be celebrating in heaven with a bunch of different people, <laughs> you know? We have to be united because the devil is the enemy. Remember that. The enemy is not people. The enemy is Satan. And we have to stand fast in one spirit if we are going to not be overcome by the darkness of this world, but we are to be overcomers, influencers, life changers, world turner upside downers. That was a word. It is now. Okay? So, so those three things here, which I would all put under the heading of be heavenly citizens, seek worthy conduct, Stand fast in one spirit. Oh, the third thing, to strive together for the faith. He said, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, the Greek word Paul uses here for striving means to compete together with someone, like we see on Olympic teams right now, okay? It's, it's this idea of competing together for the common medal, that an Olympic team, say, would, would work together. It's not just an individual event, but you're doing this as a team. And that's the idea. With one mind striving, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? 
The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected, and that by believing in him, we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, okay? That's the gospel. And we need to strive for that faith in the gospel. In the end, that's the thing that's going to matter is whether or not people believe in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they don't believe in me. That's the biggie sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of. And we, as the church, need to stand firm in one mind, striving for that faith. Doesn't matter Anything else does not matter until that first thing is solved, which is you are a sinner, I am a sinner. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll die in your sins. You'll be eternally separated from God. You'll be cast into outer darkness. But if you will believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are transferred onto him. Christ died for your sins and you will be forgiven and given eternal life. That's the gospel. We have to stand for that in this age, right? In an age that says anything goes, we have to say, no, that's not true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So that's what I believe Paul's talking about here when he's talking about striving together for the, the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So the first thing is don't be afraid of your enemies. Remember, the, the main enemy is Satan. Now he's got a bunch of underlings working for him for sure. People that are given over to, to serve Satan, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Um, but the reality of it is we need not be afraid. And this is a, yet another reason why I think Paul was able to, to go through what he, he went through. Number one, you know, he knew that he was a heavenly citizen. Number two, he knew that he could have courage no matter what was going on. Why? Because he knew that God was with him. He knew that the Lord stood by him. He stood by Paul regardless of what was happening, regardless of what suffering he was going through, he knew the Lord was with him. Why? Because he was holding fast to the Lord, to his gospel, to his word. He kept his word. He didn't deny the Lord's name. And he knew that the Lord was with him. And because the Lord was with him, you see, that's the source of courage. That's why David could go to Goliath and say, you're toast, dude. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> You've come against the armies of the living God. You're toast, and I'm going to feed you to the birds today. That's why he could do that. That's why he could have confidence and courage is because he knew the Lord was with him because he was with the Lord. Amen? And so, so, so Paul said, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Don't give them that benefit. You stand for what you know is true based upon the word of God and you can have courage no matter who you're facing. Now I know that we struggle with that. We have fears. We're weak in our flesh. Timothy, I think, 
you know, timid Tim, as, as we would call him, right? He struggled with that. That's why Paul wrote to him in, in 2 Timothy 1.7 and said, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And we need to remember that when we're going head to head with people that uh, oppose us, oppose our Christianity, oppose our moral stances, oppose our values. And, we're, and that's going to become increasingly important in this world that's becoming increasingly lawless. To be able to stand courageously for what the Bible teaches. So, but he said, you want to do this with courage. Don't be afraid of your, your um, adversaries. And he said, because that will be proof to them of their perdition or destruction. Okay? Courage proves their perdition or their destruction. That's perdition is not a word we use a lot, but it means destruction. It, it, it's proof. It's like, it's like if you're on a football team and the other guys are really big and they're really, they say, we're going to clean you up. I'm going to clean up this field with you, you know, you know, rah, you know, and it's just that, you know, you're just like, you know, you've all seen these like these little lap dogs that have an attitude, Right? <laughs> And it's like 100% attitude. You know they can't really do anything, you know? One kick and they'd like go through the goalposts. But they've got attitude, you know? <laughs> and the thing is, is that, is that um, that's sort of what I think he's saying. Look, when, when your enemies see that your courage is in the Lord, because you trust him, and you trust in his word, and you know his word can be depended upon, and you're using the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, it's going to be evidence to them that they are headed for destruction. That they cannot stand against you. It's like what happened to the Canaanites when they heard that, that Israel was coming in, and that God had part of the Red Sea, and that God was giving them victory on the east side of the Jordan River. And Rahab the prostitute said to the two spies, Everybody's heart has melted like water. They've lost their courage. Why? Because they see God is with you. That's what Paul is saying. It's evidence to them that they're just. They're headed for destruction, but it's evidence to you that you are being saved. Your confidence in the Lord, your courage will be evidence to you that you're saved. That no matter what happens in this world, hey, you know where you're going. It's the confidence that Stephen had. It's the confidence that even when they're stoning him, you know, he could look up and just say, hey, man, I see the Lord. He's standing up. He's standing at the right hand of God. You know, he's like... You know, how do you shake somebody like that? The, the answer is you don't. They're unshakable. And that's what Paul was saying. Look, this is how you need to be. This is how I'm able to be strong in the midst of the things that I've gone through. This is my secret, you know. So be courageous. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Your courage will prove their perdition and it will prove your salvation. The third thing he says, verse 29. He said, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. 
having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Understand what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, it's been granted to you. Now, if we talk about getting a grant, you know, hey, I applied for this grant and, and we were approved, you know, and you think, oh, wonderful. You know, we immediately think there's going to be this endowment of funds or whatever. Paul says, it's been granted to you to suffer. <laughs> Uh, say again. <laughs> but that's what he's saying. He's saying it's a gift. The suffering you're going through is God's gift to you. Can you deal with that? You can only deal with that if you know that suffering has a purpose. You know, as, as it says in Hebrews, it, there's a discipline in suffering. Now, sometimes suffering comes as a result of our own stupidity, okay, or, or our own bad choices. There are times when God does allow us to suffer consequences of our sins. That does happen. But there's many suffering, many sufferings, like the, the sufferings that Paul went through. You know, this was not discipline in the sense that, you know, he was getting what he deserved. But it was a chastening it was it was a and, and that's not even the right word you know it's like what where it says of Jesus in Hebrews that it says that that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered Jesus didn't suffer because he was a sinner he was sinless but through the things that he suffered he learned obedience and God has a purpose in suffering in the lives of of Christians God allows it and this is what he's saying it's been granted to you there's a purpose in it just like it's been granted to me Paul was no masochist it wasn't like he enjoyed suffering I don't think he enjoyed suffering you know we see we sort of see it a little a little inkling of the flesh coming out in Paul okay on this one time, you know, when he was standing before the Sanhedrin, this was after, you know, he went back to Jerusalem and he got arrested there and, uh, and, and the, the high priest ordered that he be, you know, slapped on the cheek. Boom! And he goes, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall! You know? You're judging me, but then you break the law yourself? You know, it's like... What? That's no way to talk to the high priest. You know, he said, oh, sorry, I didn't realize that was a high priest because it says you're not supposed to speak evil of your ruler. But, you know, you, you know I, so what, what do I see in that? I, I see that Paul just reacted. Like we all react when somebody cuts us off in the freeway or something, you know. Uh, so it wasn't, like, I, I, it wasn't like Paul just loved suffering. I don't think anybody loves suffering. But you realize that when you go through it, that God's, permitted it for a purpose and that gives you the inner strength to know number one this is father filtered okay God does not allow anything to come into my life that he has not determined is ultimately going to have a it's going to be ultimately be for my good and for his glory right that's what it says according to Romans eight twenty eight. right God works all things together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose all things he works together for good. And so that means suffering too. Now, you know, Paul was not the first to see 
you know, that God permits suffering in our lives. Job, remember Job? The terrible things that happened to Job, all that he lost in a day. And then, then he had boils all over his body. And then his wife comes out, right? And says, do you still hold fast to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you're speaking as one of the foolish women speaks. But this is what he said. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He understood. We can't just accept the good and not also accept the adversity. Because both are going to happen in life. So, Paul also knew this. In fact, Paul knew that for him, suffering was part of the assignment. You recall that after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he was blind. He was blinded by the light, you know. And I think part of it was just there was a humbling going on there in Paul. Saul, as he was called at that point, you know. And he had to be led into Damascus blind. But then the Lord spoke to one of his disciples, Ananias, and said, I want you to go and lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. And he's, oh, I'm not going in there, Lord. I know this guy. No way, man. That dude is just bad news, you know. And the Lord said to Ananias, he said, he goes, no, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I've chosen him. I'm going to show him the things he will suffer for my name's sake. So Paul knew. This is like, this is like the sand trap in the golf course, you know. I mean, it's like par for the course. He knew this was going to happen. It was inevitable. And then his life proved it out, right? He wrote to the Corinthians about it five different times. The Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. It's a good thing Jaws hadn't come out yet, okay? Can you imagine? I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, and during many sleepless nights, I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Now, was he complaining about all this? No, he was just saying, look, this, this is what I've been through for the, the gospel. You know? To the Colossians, he said that he was filling up in his own flesh the afflictions of Christ, you know, that were, that were lacking. In other words, there were still some afflictions left, and, and Paul was receiving them now. And yet he did it all with, you know, not out of a complaint. I don't know where he complained about it. I don't know where he tried to blame others. I don't know where he became discouraged. You know, I mean, the guy was amazing. How did he go through all that and still maintain 
joy and peace and a grateful heart. It's because of these things. He knew there was a purpose in all of it. He knew that this was not his, this world was not his world. It was not his citizenship. He knew that there was a, a crown of righteousness laid up for him because he fought the good fight. He ran the good race. He didn't give up. He didn't go AWOL. He didn't quit. You know? He fulfilled the purpose that the Lord had for him. And therefore, like Jesus, who glorified God through his suffering, Paul considered it even a privilege that he could suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. I can't say I'm there yet, okay? (laughs) But I want to be there. I want to be able to take those things in stride and say, hey, praise the Lord. So, that's the big question. Am I willing to suffer for Christ's sake? Or perhaps I should ask, what am I willing to endure for the name of Jesus Christ? Am I willing to suffer hardship or rejection or insult or persecution? Am I willing to go through that for Jesus? You know, when I consider, I love that, that hymn, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. There is something about just gazing upon the Lord, meditating upon what he did for me, I still can't even get my mind around what, it, what Paul said where he said that, that he became sin for us. He became sin incarnate for us. He took upon himself all the sins of the world. The son of God who had known no sin for eternity became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. I can't, even, I can't even get my mind around that. I just know that, Lord, when I consider what you did for me, not because you had to, just because you love me, you know, the least I can do is suffer insult or rejection or whatever, you know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't suffered to the point of shedding my blood yet unless the time that we were having a work day at the property and I cut my finger or something, I had to go get stitches. <laughs> I, I just hope, at, at the judgment seat of Christ, when they're handing out the, re, the rewards, I don't follow the Apostle Paul. I'm just saying. <laughs> but what am I willing to, you know, what would I endure for Jesus? the one who endured so much for me. You know, later on in this this letter to the Philippians, Paul will talk about, you know, the fellowship of his suffering. And I think Paul understood that there was a certain intimacy, there was a, a fellowship, a communion that he experienced in those times when everybody rejected him, they all left him, you know, 
All the people of Asia Minor, he would say, have forsaken me. You know, there were those times when it was just Jesus and him. But I think in those moments, there was a depth of fellowship that made it worth it, you know? Just like when you're married, you know? You realize it's, it's those hardship things you go through that really make your marriage. It's what binds you together. It's the fellowship of the suffering that, you know, you build up this history with each other and this bond because of the stuff you've gone through. And I don't think it's any different in our relationship with Jesus. So be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. Um, receive suffering as a God's gift. <laughs> be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. And the, last, the very last thing he says here is um, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, he's saying, look, you guys are partaking with me in this conflict. This, this word conflict, it can be um, like struggle or contest um, or a fight. You know, the fight against forces of evil, the fight against sin, the fight against this world. He said, you're, you're partakers with me in this. But that in of itself brings us comfort. You know why? It's because we know that we're not going through this alone. The, the sufferings that you may be going through, you're not alone. And even if you feel like you're alone, you know, that's all the more reason why you need to be in fellowship. This is why church is so important. This is why we should never forsake gathering with other believers. Why? Because we need to know that other people are suffering in the same ways that we are. They're dealing with the same temptations. They're dealing with the same sins. They're dealing with the same heartaches. And we find strength and encouragement and comfort in the one another when we know that we're not in this alone. Amen? Misery does love company. And that is a source of strength to endure suffering. Just knowing that you're not in it alone. Knowing that when you're going through it, you have people, some of the best times in, in, in places of hardship and suffering that, that I have personally gone through, some of the best times, one in particular, two, actually two things I can think of in particular, was at a prayer summit with a bunch of other pastors from many different denominations and I poured my heart out to things that I was going through that were just great heartbreaks. And these guys who had been in ministry for decades longer than me, you know, came around me with heartfelt prayers, prayed for me, and I saw God manifest himself in amazing ways. And part of it was simply just giving me the courage to continue to go on. But you see, that's, that can only happen in the fellowship of believers. Amen? That's why these small groups that we do are so important. You know, we try to do it here. We want to do it here. But somehow, we don't open up like we do in our small groups. Men's study, women's study, the life groups, the, the source on Friday nights, young adults. It's, 
that opportunity where we can say, listen, I'm going through some tough stuff and I need prayer. Amen? And you get to know those people and you know you can trust them and, you know, that is so important to strengthen us through this thing called life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you for your love for us, God, and we thank you that we are able to endure because you endured the cross, Lord. And because you endured the cross, you've paid the price in full for our sins. And because our sins have been paid for, we are justified in your sight. We are filled with your Holy Spirit. We have a hope beyond this life. And Lord, I just pray for each person here. I pray, Lord, just, you know, I don't know what they're going through, Lord. You know everything they're going through, Lord. You know all of our sins, all of our temptations, all of our trials, all of our heartaches. Lord, all of the insults we've endured, perhaps, Lord, you know it all. And Lord, thank you that you are able to carry us through it all. So Lord, I just pray that we would be open with you, Lord, that we would cast all our cares on you because you care for us. And Lord, in so doing, that you would strengthen us for the battle, Lord. Help us stand firm, stand fast in one spirit. Help us to endure hardship and suffering, Lord. Help us to conduct ourselves, Lord, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom in this world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to partake of communion, but we're going to do something a little bit different today. And, um, and it kind of came to me as I was doing these devotions on, um, on just the sacrificial system under the old covenant. You know, when they would bring like a bull or a goat or a lamb as their sin offering, you know, they bring it to the altar and then they would lay their hands on it and they would confess their sins. And then as they saw the death of that sin sacrifice, you know, then they realized that animal is dying because of my sin. But they also knew that because they had gone through that, they were now forgiven. The price had been paid in full. And the blood atoned for their sins. And so what I want us to do today, you know, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians about communion, he said, that we should examine ourselves before we partake of the body and the blood of Jesus, of communion. We should examine ourselves and rightly discern his body. And what I take that as meaning is, is just just recognizing that my sins were placed upon Christ, that he died for them, and that I receive his forgiveness by my confession. You know, this, everybody in this world is in one of two categories. Either they are in their sins because their sins are on them or through the transference, their sins have been placed upon Jesus Christ. Their sins are not on them anymore. God looks at them as justified, forgiven, 
whole, washed, sanctified, cleansed? Which are you? And when we come, and we come to the cross, we, we say, Lord, thank you for dying for my sins. Here they are. I confess them to you. And I, and I give them to you, and I rejoice that you have forgiven me and that I stand justified in your sight. So that's what I want us to do. As the Lord puts it upon your heart, you're going to just come up here. I'm not, just come up as you feel led. And if there's anything that you know you need to confess, that you need to just transfer to the Lord, I want it to be a thing of just quietly, privately, you give that to the Lord. But you do not give that to the Lord without also receiving in totality his forgiveness for that thing. Amen? And that means you don't bring it up anymore because God says, I will remember their sins no more. You confess it. The Bible said he's faithful just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then you're free. Amen? That's the power of the cross. That's what I believe it means to rightly discern the body of Christ and what he accomplished for each of us on that cross. So let's, let's just pray and then you just go up and uh, as we sing this song. Father, thank you for your work, Lord God. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for the beauty and the efficacy of the cross, Lord, to completely cleanse us. Jesus, thank you that you said that those who the Son of Man has set free are free indeed. And I pray, Lord, for chains to be broken today, Lord. I pray that through conviction of the Spirit and confession of sin, we would be uh, forgiven and free and rejoicing in your finished work for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.